All right. Who's ready? Hebrews chapter 3. Y'all thought we was done with it last week, but huh? I like to pull a little trickaroo on you. I had some more stuff to cover. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to look at uh, three verses, uh, 12 through 14. 12, 13, 14, yes, it's three verses. So the preacher is writing and he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, much of that language should sound familiar. We, we uh, talked about some of it last week. We're not quite done with this chapter just yet. There are a couple things that we need to look at before we, we go on here. And I think today is an appropriate day for us to look at these things and be joyful about the things that we're going to see this morning. Number one, because it's the Lord's Day Amen. and we are gathered together. I'm going to emphasize that. We are gathered together Amen. in His name. Amen. Secondly, because today, immediately following the message, we're, we're going to have a baptism. Amen. And we're going to welcome and celebrate together life in Christ. And then immediately after that, as if by divine providence, we are all going to gather together and practice Christian togetherness as we break bread and fellowship with one another in the bonds of love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in some ways, it kind of feels like the passage that we've come to today comes to us with an even more tangible sense of God's divine providence. I I believe that when we gather together in His name, in all of the sermons that we hear preached from this pulpit in His name, they are, in fact, providential. What I mean by that is that God is always working. He always has a plan and a purpose not not only for where we are in the Bible, where we go in the Scripture, but also what we learn while we're there, whether you or I am fully aware of it or not. God is working, and He has a plan and a purpose. There are times when I preach, and and for me, it's it's just the next text in the sequence. I'm, I'm always trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, but there, there are some times where I just, I just feel like I'm preaching this text because it, it's just what, what comes next, and there's a reason it comes next, but this is just what comes next in the Bible. But, but then afterwards, after the sermon's done, after we shake hands and, and, and be friendly, you know, one or two of you will come up to me and you'll tell me, Pastor Jeff, I needed that today. Amen. I'm going through, man, what the Scripture was talking about, that's exactly what I'm going through, and I needed to hear that. And, and, and for you, as, as the whole thing's being unfolded, as I'm up here talking, it's, it's like you are keenly aware of God's providence in all this, His plan and His purpose. It's like it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Man, He's talking to me, and I, had, I didn't even have you in mind when I'm writing it, right? But God did. He knows what's going on. Amen. For me, I can think of probably a handful of sermons where 
I've, that I've preached over the years that they're just, there's absolutely no, no way around it. God worked it so that we would be in a specific text at a specific time that, that where either I myself or we as a church were going through a specific thing. And he's just, I'm just, I'm, I'm like, wow, I can't, I can't believe it. Oh, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. You know, I'm just astonished by it sometimes. Today, as, as we celebrate baptism, we come together afterwards to break bread and fellowship in his name. We consider what the preacher says to us in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers. Exhort one another every day. Amen. Amen. I think that's providence. Amen. Last week, we considered the two very big ifs in chapter 3. In verse 6, he says, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Then in verse 14, which is part of our text this morning, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now I told you that tenses, verb tenses, they matter. It does not say, if we hold our confidence firm to the end, then we will share in Christ, or then we will become his house. But it does say that if we hold fast our confidence firm to the end, we have shared. Past tense. We have shared in Christ. We are his house. Present tense. This is an evidence of who you are. In fact, that you are in him. That you are his. You are children of God. That you hold fast your confidence firm to the end. Children of God do that. That's definitive of who they are. Do you hope in Him? Is your confidence in Christ? Is Christ treasured for you above all else? It's a test for you. How how do I know? How do I know? Is Christ my treasure? Is Christ my hope? How do I know? If He is, then you know. How do I remain secure? Then, how do I hold fast as it tells me I need to do, as children of God do? How do I hold fast to the very end? How do I keep myself from being on the wrong side of one of those great ifs that we saw in chapter 2? Is it, is it like a, a one-and-done kind of thing where I have a moment of belief and then that's it, I'm done? Like a, I get a shot, a tetanus shot or a whatever, a vaccination, and I don't have to think about it the rest of my life? Is that it? How do I hold fast? How do I maintain and remain secure? Amen. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. The Bible clearly teaches us that he holds us, he holds us firmly in the palm of his hand. What can separate us from the love of God? You can't lose it. But like we said last week, and I think the week before that, you can walk away from it. <clears throat> by what means am I able to preserve, by what means does God use to preserve me and keep me from walking away. In other words, how is it, why is it that I wake up every morning and remain a Christian? What is it that makes me believe? Is it a choice, a decision I've made? 
Have I done something grand and glorious to deserve salvation? How is it, what means does God use to preserve us to the very end? So that when life happens, when trial and tribulation comes, when, when everything raises its ugly head against us and it causes us to want to question the sovereignty and the goodness and the trustworthiness and the value and the beauty and the treasuredness of God, how do I keep from going the other direction and saying, this is a lie and this is a truth? How do I maintain my focus on the truth? There are, into that question presented to us three realities that we must consider in this text. We have to consider them because the preacher assumes them. He assumes them, the realities that I'm about to present to you, and so therefore we must consider them in trying to understand what it is that he says. So they're right here in the passage. We're going to work backwards on these. Because logically, they're, they're layered like a pyramid. You have a, a wide base, and each layer gets more and more specific. So reality number one that we must consider, because the preacher assumes it, is that sin is deceitful. Amen. That's in verse 13 at the very end. He says, the deceitfulness of sin. Now, what does this mean? All sin is a lie. At its very base... Sin comes to you as a lie. It's a lie that it tries to convince you, it tries to deceive you into believing that something, or or anything for that matter, is better, more valuable, more trustworthy than God. More treasured than Christ. Sin is after your desire. Be careful, Cain. Sin is creeping, crouching at the door. And you must rule over it. Its desire is to have you. Sin wants your desire. Sin works hard to disorder your desires away from God. When we studied James 1, we saw that James tells us very clearly that we are tempted to sin when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. Now this places desire, the, the things that we want, what we crave, what we want, what we follow after, what we put our eyes on, it places desire in a very important position. When we, when we get right down to it, The essence of evil is desiring anything more than God. When you strip everything else away and you ask yourself, what is evil, essentially? At the very base of it, we have to conclude that it is a desire of anything more than God. A treasuring of anything more than Christ. We sin, we commit evil, because in that moment, we desire something else more than God. In the previous verse, in verse 12, the preacher says, 
that an unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, comma, unbelieving heart. So an unbelieving heart is evil. That's an evil heart. The root of unbelief is desire. Those who don't believe, they do so because they don't want the truth. They don't want, let me, let me refer, they don't want the truth to be true. They want to be their own God and set their own rules and for their own truth, their own desires to be true. They don't believe that God is who God is and that what he has for them is better, more precious, or more satisfying than whatever it is that they want. A liar desires to be well thought of more than God. A thief desires gain more than God. Adulterers and fornicators desire the thrill and the pleasure of the moment more than God. A lustful eye desires sensual enticement, desires the luring more than the loving of God. And all of that is because they're deceived into believing that those things are of greater value, at least for the moment, than the all-satisfying God of the universe. Think about every sin you've read about in the Bible. That's what it boils down to. They believe a lie, which is, to put it in a negative way, an unbelief in the truth, specifically in God. Are you following me? Sin deceives. It is Deception at its core in the Garden of Evil, the Garden of Eden, which turned out to be evil, right? <laughs> the, you know, the tempter coming in, what do you say? Has God said? Surely you won't die. And then he told her lies about God's character. God's just jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him. Sin lies. It deceives us into desiring and valuing things more than God because it deceives us about God, about His character, His righteousness, His holiness, His goodness, His judgments, His trustworthiness. It lies to you. And here's the thing. The more you listen to the lies, the more you begin to believe them. I forget who said it, but it was an infamous person that said, if you tell a lie for long enough and often enough, People begin to believe it as the truth. The more you listen to the lies, the more you begin to believe them. This is important to understand because the only way to confront and to combat a lie is how? With the truth. That's what comes in and makes the lie a lie, the truth. We present the truth and now we recognize the lie as a lie. Supposed to. That's the only way to combat a lie is with the truth. If a lie is allowed to go unchecked, what do people do with it? They believe it. They trust it. If they make it true, you have to confront the lie with the truth in order to to call the lie out to show it for what it is. 
If you're never faced with the truth, the truth is never reinforced against a lie, then the lie begins to look true to you. That's why the lie, the deceitfulness of sin, is the, the first reality that we must consider in this text. And you better consider it. You better understand it. Or you'll find yourself falling for sin's deceit. Amen. Every time. And you know what? That devil, that liar, that tempter, that deceiver, the Bible says he comes to you as an angel of light. Let me explain to you what that looks like. It's your own daggum voice in your own daggum head telling you the lie that you should believe. And you're so good at convincing yourself because you know every weakness in your heart. You know every desire in your heart. You're good at convincing yourself of lies. And you tell yourself lies. And if you never confront those lies with the truth, if you don't take a stand, put on the helmet of the hope of our salvation in Christ, guess what? You're going to fall for your own lies. Where does sin come from? Our own. It's your own lies. So you better consider it. As a Christian believer, you better consider it. Second reality, still in verse 13. Believing the lie, trusting sin, desiring and valuing anything else over God has the effect of hardening the heart. To get a a better understanding of what this means, I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, uh, verses 18 and 19, Paul is writing to the, the, about the Gentiles, specifically those who refuse the truth of the gospel. And here's what he says in verse 18. He says, they, these Gentiles who have refused the gospel, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way that you learned Christ. So notice that Paul does not say that they misunderstood. He says, They have understanding. They have a darkened understanding. So what's the implication? The implication here is that this isn't something that they are merely confused about and simply need to see it spelled out. They understand, but darkly. This is the kind of thing that is at work in a lot of areas, in, in, uh, sadly, in the Christian church, in our government, in our society today. Dark understanding, meaning that they are convinced, not confused, they are convinced in the wickedness of their understanding. This is why you can have some people who can come out and they can confidently say that God is non-binary or that the Trinity is a homosexual entity, or that Jesus was transgender, at the very least gay-affirming. They understand darkly. And if you challenge them on these things, they're going to take you right back to the same word that we look at and say, oh no, this is what it says. They're convinced 
It doesn't have to be things like, you know, uh, homosexuality and, and gender stuff. That's just what's in the news lately. And, and, and I've, I've said it before, I believe it. In this day and age, this is the theological battle of our time, um, is, is human sexuality. Um, but it, it could be anything. It could be anything. Um, God wants you, just wants you to be happy. So show me where it says that in the Bible. You do you. Show me where that's in the scripture. No, the Bible says to die to yourself. <laughs> Crucify the flesh. Never says you do you, boo. <laughs> well, my truth, the Bible never considers your truth. Amen. Darkened understanding. Not, not misunderstanding, but a darkened understanding. If you misunderstand something, Someone takes the time to correct your understanding, to explain the situation rightly, and you go, oh, I see. I misunderstood. I'm, oh, I got it now. This happened with Apollos and, and, and Philippa. They went to him. They said, oh, he's, he's teaching, but the guy's a powerful preacher, but he's got some doctrinal issues. We've got to correct those. So they went and they taught him the correct doctrine. This is what, it, this is what we're told in Corinthians. And the correct doctrine, and guess what? Apollos was like, oh, I didn't. I didn't understand. He didn't understand darkly. He simply misunderstood. Amen. He was willing and open to receive correction. There's a difference Amen. between dark understanding and misunderstanding. These guys, these Gentiles that Paul is writing about, they understood darkly. They were convinced. You come at them with any kind of godly truth, and what do they do? They reject it. Because they have their own truth, they understand darkly. This is a, a dramatic support, I believe, for what I just told you about sin. That it is deceitful. Sin is a lie. And if you believe a lie, you begin to understand darkly. But look at the cause in, in Ephesians, the cause for this dark understanding. Again, this is when you, you listen to the lies of sin and you become convinced that the lies are the truth. What this causes is a hardened heart. He says they are darkened in their understanding. And this next part between the commas describes what that darkened understanding does. And then we see the root cause of these two things. Due to their hardness of heart. So the way it's worded, we have a, an effect, an effect of the effect and then the root cause. Darkened understanding, alienated from God, all because of a hard heart. So, so flip it around, and let's put it in bottom-up order. What we see is that their hearts are hardened, and this causes them to understand darkly, to believe the lies of sin, and that their darkened understanding, which is the ignorance within them, alienates them from God. So in, in Paul's assessment to the, the Ephesians, it is the hard heart that is at the root of this. So what, what I can tell you about that is that having a hard heart means to, it, 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 it implies that you're, you're not easily touched. You're not easily moved by the truth or the beauty or the preciousness of Christ, of, of the truth of who God is what he has done for you and his promises and his glory. You're not, you're not easily moved by that. 
And a heart that is able to be hardened is a deadly and disastrous reality. And this is where Hebrews 3.13 comes in. You are, Hebrews 3.13, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You believe the lies of sin. This hardens your heart and causes you to become convinced of the lie, to understand darkly. Not, not misunderstand, but to be convinced of the wickedness. You, you refuse to see, you refuse to be moved by the beauty and the glory of Christ. This is a hard heart. So at the, the bottom, the broadest reality we must consider in this text, sin is deceitful. Its purpose is to deceive us. The next up, as we give in to the lies and we believe the lies, our hearts become hardened against the truth. We understand darkly. And then next up, finally, the third reality that we must consider here is that ultimately this can lead you away from God. That's verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the the evil, unbelieving heart leads away from God. Now, the wording here is particularly important. It says that it leads you to fall away from the living God. Now, now this implies that the one who falls at one point was close to or near with God, right? How can you fall from something if you weren't with the something? Doesn't it imply that? So so these three realities taken together then are are devastating warnings to believers. Sin is lying to you. If you aren't careful, you will believe the lies and harden your heart. And ultimately, that can lead you to fall away from God. Those are the realities that the preacher is preaching into as he gives us our encouragements, our commandments. Three difficult realities and now two commandments. Like I said, the, the preacher has these realities in mind. That's why he gives us the tools or the means to confront them. So first, in verse 12, he says uh, to us something that's pretty general, pretty broad, something that we must generally do for ourselves on an ongoing basis. And he starts off by saying, take care. That Grammatically speaking, this is an imperative. It's a command, which means you do this. You take care. The sense of it, when he says take care, the sense is to be vigilant, to be on the lookout for what is, what is happening, to be careful as you proceed. So we don't just coast through life without a concern or a care in the world about how we think or how we feel or how we behave. We we, we can't be careless or nonchalant or inattentive about the condition of our heart, the things that we put into our heart, the lies that we listen to, the, the sources that we listen to, the voices that we give heed to. We can't just be careless about that stuff. How we behave, we can't just be careless about that. We must consider our souls. Test yourself to see that you are in the faith. 
That's Bible. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.10, be diligent to confirm your election and your calling. How do I confirm it outside of how I behave? Outside of the fruit of my life? My desire, my hope, my trust is in Jesus. If that faith is real, James tells us that out of that abundance of that faith, out of that real life faith, fruit will grow. Works will be produced. If they're not produced, that faith is not real. I don't really hope in Christ. We can't coast or just drift along with the tides. We can't can't take our perseverance, our hold fastness until the end for granted. Do you know why? Because, think about it, There are all manner of temporary, lesser, wicked passions and pleasures that are making war for your soul, for the attention of your soul every day. Trying to to break your faith and deceive you, harden your heart, draw you away from Christ by doing what? By replacing some lesser treasure for Christ. Some lesser pleasure for Christ. Some temporary mud pie for a day at the beach. A life at the beach. Do you see the imagery? That's C.S. Lewis, by the way. So the preacher says, take care. Watch out for your heart. Be on the lookout. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the for for from it flow the springs of life. The commandment of verse twelve in Hebrews: Take heed, open your eyes and see. First Peter five eight: Be sober minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So take care. Guard your heart against the deceitfulness of sin. Second commandment, exhort one another. This is still, again, in answer to those three difficult and devastating realities that we just talked about. And I mean that the preacher tells us what we need to do. He gives us some specific actions. We went from a general command to a specific command, and he gives us some specific action to actually take, how to behave, as it were. This is verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay. I hope you're still with me because this is crucial. Holding fast till the end, there's a means for it. We talked about that early on. This is crucial to that that goal. Holding fast to the end, or as as we say, perseverance in the faith. So you finish well. The preacher says that we must exhort one another. Again, this is a commandment. This is an imperative. He comes to us and he says, you do this. The commandment is to exhort, which means to encourage, to edify, to strengthen, to build up. 
So what does the preacher give us to help us hold fast to the end, to keep us from becoming prey to the deceitfulness of sin, from hardening our hearts and falling away from God? Like I said earlier, how do we last? How do we persevere? How do we not end up on the wrong side of those great ifs in chapter 3 that we talked about? But one of the ways that he gives us is the community and the fellowship of believers. Very quickly, there are three aspects of this commandment to exhort and exchange that we need to see. Number one, it is something that we must do for each other. The church, that's us, that's me and you, must be the church for each other. What is the main thing that that we do? We come together, we, we worship God, glorify God. What is the main thing that the church does for one another? We, we speak to each other, do we not, in ways that help us to not be deceived by the enticements and lies of sin. Amen. We encourage and exhort one another. That's what we do for each other. Or to, to put it positively, we, we speak to each other in ways that cause us to have hearts of faith, that, that trust in God, that trust in the truth and the truth of who God is, that cause us to treasure the superior value of Christ over all things. So what the preacher is saying to us is that we are in a battle, not only for our own faith, but for each other's faith as well. Do you see that? So... We're in a fight to maintain each other's faith by speaking words, exhorting one another to the point that the truth and value of Jesus is made great, is made trustworthy. We want to point you and speak words to you, and you want to speak words to one another that make Jesus treasured, trusted, that puts truth in front of the lie. So helping each other to believe means showing people the reasons why Jesus is more to be desired, more to be trusted, more to be loved than anything else. And it, more to the point, it, it doesn't just come from the pulpit. It comes through you to others and from others back to you. This is a body ministry. It's an exhortation to the whole church. The responsibility is given to all Christians to exhort each other. What does this mean? How how do we do this? How do we fulfill this commandment? What what does it look like? How does it it live like? Well, we we speak life and truth to each other. We, we, We show grace and love and mercy. And at the same time, we don't ignore willful sin. We exhort and encourage by reminding each other of the truth of God. And do we not do that? God is good. He's with you. Let me pray for you. Let's go to God about this. It might sound like Scripture. You know, a specific passage that comes to your mind in a specific situation to provide wisdom or encouragement, maybe even rebuke, correction, done lovingly. 
It might sound like, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this because God will never leave you or forsake you. And I'm going to walk with you and he's going to walk with you and we'll get through this together. You're not alone in this. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it's essentially speaking truth to the lies of sin. Sin pulls you away, lies to you about God. So you say, why has the Lord forsaken me? He hasn't and he never will. So we must encourage one another, each other. Second aspect, we must encourage each other every day. This means all the time, okay? All the time. Again, clear indication that this is something that doesn't just happen in our gatherings together on Sunday and certainly not something that comes from the pulpit down only. This is on each of us every day to lift up and encourage and exhort one another. Like I said before, we are in a fight, not just for our own faith, but for our brothers' and sisters' faith as well. Finally, while it is called today, essentially, every chance you get. If, if, if you let the opportunity pass, it might be too late. Amen. Do it. Amen. Don't wait. Let the truth of God, the encouragement of Scripture, be in the front of your mouth. Lift up and encourage one another all the time, every chance you get. This is why it's important to spend time in the Word. It's hard to get encouragement from God and truth from God if you don't know Him. We go to the Bible to know Him. Here's the implication, and it's remarkable. God has ordained that the church, the fellowship of believers, me and you, we are an essential means for us individually to persevere in the faith and not to be deceived by sin. Do you see that? I've given you this example before. I know it may get tired, but think about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on water. He went by himself. And, and then he's looking at Christ, right? That's the truth. Jesus is right there. But then he starts looking around at the waves. That's a temporary reality because this is not our home. You know that, right? Amen. Amen. This is a temporary. It will all burn one day and we will have a new creation rebuilt, a new heaven, a new earth. So he starts looking at the temporary reality and not the eternal beauty that's in front of him. Amen. Right? Amen. And what happened to him? He began to sink. Right? Well, imagine if the other disciples, instead of Peter getting out and walking alone, if the others had got out with him hand in hand, arm in arm. So one of them gets worried about the waves. The other one says, dude, Jesus is right there. What does that do? Oh, you're right. <laughs> Dumb me. What was I worried about this for? Jesus is right there. Keep your eyes on Christ. That's why Paul said, I press to the mark of the high calling of God. Amen. This one thing I know, I do that. Amen. Above everything else, I do that. Amen. He's given us each other as a means to hold fast our confession, our confidence to the very end. That's the end of verse 13. He says, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you encourage one another all the time, every chance you get, so that, in order that, to the end, little words matter, to the end that none of you fall victim to sin's lies. Encourage one another so you don't fall victim to sin. 
So the goal is perseverance. You see that? That's, that's what, it, what it means. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He wants you to make it to the very end. So that you persevere to the end. That you hold fast your confidence to the end. Encourage each other all the time, every chance you get, so that you make it to the end. This, this that in the verse, that's a very important that. It hinges the last part of the text to the first part, of, on the first part of the text. You encourage one another so that you make it. Yeah. Our duty to each other in this life is to help each other keep the faith. There are eternal lives on the line here. And if, if we fail in our duty, if we neglect each other, if we forsake the gathering of ourselves together, we risk not only our own souls, but the souls of others. Yeah. Do you see the? I mean, if you believe what the preacher wrote, what the Bible says, do you see this? I am my brother's keeper. Very quickly, very quickly. <laughs> Three difficulties, difficult realities, two very helpful commands, I think, and one great and glorious promise. Verse 14, he says, Brothers, be careful, be watchful, help each other along the way. Then verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, we have come. Our, our holding on, our perseverance is evidence that we are bought by the blood of Jesus. It's a great promise to share in Christ. We share in His kingdom. We share in His inheritance. And do you know what? One day we'll share in His glory as He glorifies us as sons and daughters of God. Amen. Amen. Oh, what a great thing to behold. What a great promise to have. If we, if we keep the faith to the very end, encouraging one another, lifting one another, strengthening one another so that we don't fall for the deceitfulness of sin, but we see Christ as grand and glorious above all things, above everything. And so, today, it's good that we come to this text. It's good for us to be reminded on a day like today when we've got so many things going on of just how essential we are for each other how we cannot, nor we ever meant to do this alone. The Christian life is not a life of solitude. I've told you, you cannot be church alone. God has given us each other as a means of keeping. He uses us as agents for His keeping. You, you test it. You go to the Bible and you see where God says that He keeps us. He, he is using us as agents for the keeping, the fellowship of the saints, one for another, to encourage and exhort and lift up each other all the time, every chance we get. When the Bible says God keeps us, we are one of the agents of his keeping. You, you test it. You go to the scripture and see if that doesn't make sense and line up exactly with what he's saying. Our responsibility, oh, we have such an individualistic society in our, our, our culture that, you know, it's, it's me. And I've got I to gotta look out for me. And, and that's why the Bible says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. Because the wisdom of God says, no, dude, you've got to look out for everybody else too. Yeah. Amen. Amen. 
Encourage, exhort, lift up one another all the time, every chance you get. Amen? Let us pray. And while I'm doing that, Joe, you want to head to the back and we'll, we'll get ready and we'll do this. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus and I thank you for your word. I thank you for this encouragement this morning, for this exhortation this morning to us from your word to do just that, to exhort and encourage one another. Father, I pray that you help us to be more mindful of this. And those of us who struggle in this area, I pray that you help us to do better. Let us see the gravity of, of the commandment, Lord, that this is a, a necessary means. It is, people are relying on us to be encouragements for them in their time of need, in their time of, of discouragement, Lord. People are relying on us to be shelters and shields for them against the lies of sin. Father, help us to strengthen ourselves in your word and, and to, to, to clothe ourselves rightly and to comport ourselves rightly so that we can be light and life in the world. Father God, we love you and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.